Hello, you're listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and today is October 10th, 2023. The subject of today's podcast is the war between Israel and Hamas. Brett Lowry, head of special situations at Academy Securities, will be moderating this podcast. Featured guests include our head of macro strategy, Peter Chur, advisory board member, Major General Mastin Robertson, and associate of geopolitical strategy, Maria Donnelly. Wonderful. Welcome, everybody, uh, to our latest podcast focused on the war between Israel and Hamas. I'm Brett Lowry, head of special situations here at Academy Securities, um, and I'm joined today by Major General Retired Mastin Robinson, uh, Maria Donnelly, and our head of macro strategy, Peter Chur. Uh, today's discussion will be focused on to the war in Israel uh, and the horrific events of Saturday and the attack um, on Israel by Hamas. We'll look at today, uh, you know, where we are. You know, how did we get to this point, um, Israel's response, and where do we think it goes from there? And we'll give a quick snapshot of the overall situation, um, the parties that could get involved. Obviously, a lot of talk about Iran, a lot of talk about Hezbollah, um, and obviously what the United States is doing with the Karyo Battle Group moving into the region uh, to try and deter those parties from getting involved in this conflict. Uh, we'll talk about uh, the impact of the overall strategic landscape in the Middle East. Uh, obviously, the you know overall discussion between Israel and Saudi Arabia um, and those hopes of a security dialogue coming to effect uh, are all out the window, likely at this point, you know, with this current conflict going on. So we'll obviously focus on the overall dynamics in the region. And we'll talk about the macro implications as well. Um, so without further ado, I will pass over to General Robson for his perspective on the events on the ground, how we got to where we are today, and where we see things going in the near term. General. Yeah, thanks, Brett. So obviously uh, a surprise to everybody, particularly to the nation of Israel, which is a surprise in itself that they were surprised. Um, but two days ago, we all know that Hamas invaded uh, southern Israel out of a, the small Gaza Strip. We know that Israel was asleep at the switch. Um, seemingly from a series of um, confidence-building relationships that they thought they had established with Hamas that ended up not to be true or valid. Um, they also were overconfident in the architecture they had built on the fence line. Uh, it came down pretty quickly, and uh, they, they opened up about five to seven passage points, and before Israel could respond, uh, they had done a significant amount of damage, uh, up to 800 fatalities, and 2,500 injuries at the end of yesterday. Uh, Israel has now responded, mobilized, as we expected they would. Uh, they're no stranger to this type of a situation. They've been here before. And from an Israeli perspective, whether you agree with it or not, their perspective is they're surrounded by nothing but enemies. Now, over the past decade, uh, some of that seemed to be melting a bit uh, with the talks with Saudi Arabia, some of the talks with Jordan, going all the way back to the really the Abraham Accords. Uh, there are some relationships that have been building, and those nations historically have sat on the sideline to these type things. Keep in mind, though, going all the way back to uh, Yom Kippur War, that the, the Arab community believed that was a success because they successfully crossed uh, the Suez Canal. They successfully reached the Golan Heights. So you know, that I don't think that's what we're looking at here, where it's going to be that large of a of a scenario because you don't have Egypt involved. Uh, but you do have the threat of certainly Hezbollah coming in from the north. There already have been rockets fired, though Hezbollah has not claimed credit for that. Um, you're, you, you hope that the Abraham Accords will 
facilitate Egypt, Saudi, Jordan, UAE, Bahrain, sitting on the sidelines and letting this play out. Um, there is a very a, an element of complexity in the significant coordination in the attack that we've just witnessed over the last 48 hours. Uh, don't know yet, factually, if there was outside help in helping uh, Hamas plan that. But certainly there would be indications that there are uh, this this was not an over-the-night planning. This has been months in the planning to have something this complicated uh, and to be this successful and to catch Israel by such surprise. So it'll be fascinating to see as we move forward, uh, you know, how, how, how Hamas reacts. Uh, we know what Israel's going to do. They're now going to go into Gaza with 300,000. Don't know if the whole 300,000 will go in. Historically speaking, the threat here is when you go into a, a small area like this, 25 miles by 10 miles of the Gaza Strip, and you're in essence dealing with a large number of people, most of the population being civilians, how do you do this so that it, it does not become uh, death by mass, but it's more surgical? Uh, so that'll be Israel's challenge on how to do that. Clearly, the the, the world community seems to have said, certainly the EU and the U.S., that Israel has, has the right to defend themselves. But there have also been both U.N. and EU voices that are saying, but that really needs to be done within the confines of international law. So that's kind of where we are today. Um, my guess is over the next 12 hours, 24 hours, there will be movement of those 300,000 uh, reservists that Israel has, has positioned in the south to be able to go into the Gaza Strip. And I'm sure they have positioned people to the north as well uh, in anticipation of a Hezbollah uh, or a Lebanese reaction from there as well. Gotcha. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Marie, I'll turn it over to you for some of your perspectives on this. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, um, I think that uh, General Master General uh, Major General Robertson covered most of it, but I think that the biggest uh, implications I'm seeing are kind of regional. Um, obviously, this does upend a lot of the normalization talks between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which was a major goal, foreign policy goal of the United States in recent times. Um, I don't know. We obviously don't have any clear information on whether Iran was behind this or not, but that would kind of, it would make sense. Iran is obviously one of uh, Hamas's biggest supporters. So if that is the case, um, that might have larger regional implications. Um, the U.S. in general, we've been shipping, the United States government has been seizing shipments of weapons intended for Iranian partners, and we've been redirecting them to places like Ukraine. So it might be, um, there's other players in the region like Russia or kind of globally that might be affected by this. So I think there's just a lot of potential blowback and follow on that'll come from this. Um, I don't think Syria necessarily has the capacity to retaliate in any way, but I think that the biggest question is, will Lebanon kind of allow Lebanese Hezbollah to go? Do they have the capacity to stop them if Lebanese Hezbollah makes the decision to kind of move in from the north? Um, and the calculations on whether or not Israel has that the northern borders secured sufficiently. 
Um, we know that now they, they're announcing that they've secured that southern border. Um, they've been bombing the border crossings with Egypt and Jordan has closed the border. But what happens with the other neighbors, I think, is kind of the big open question right now. And I think that that's going to be the big thing that might affect everything else globally and regionally. Um, I think Israel is able to kind of defend itself. Obviously, they were caught flat footed, but they are um, a much more capable military than most of their neighbors, but if they are facing an attack from multiple fronts, um, I think there's there are questions. And then it's a question of the extent of the United States commitment. I know that um, the president just announced that there are American hostages that have been taken by Hamas. 14 Americans have been killed at least so far and that there are additional hostages. So I think that the extent to which other nations are pulled in and then the, the response of other um, kind of allies in the United States. I know Germany has said that they might be freezing aid to the Gaza Strip and redirecting some of that to Israel. Um, the decisions that our European partners make are going to be very interesting because this is, I think the world is united in horror, but the actual concrete steps that governments and militaries take moving forward are going to be decisive in how this evolves. Well, Maria, I'd add to what you're saying too, um... That it's going to be interesting to see how Turkey responds to this as well, because they certainly have a voice in the EU. Uh, does that become a, another point of friction that then leads to Ukraine and Russia as well? Um, and the fascinating thing to me is, what does Saudi Arabia do? Um, I, I think we were all surprised when Saudi Arabia started talking about uh, they were they were going to have some sort of deal or partnership uh, with Iran. Uh, my experience from my uh, really decades in the Middle East is that Saudi Arabia absolutely fears and can't stand Iran. And, and I just had a hard time seeing this as being them having a marriage that was going to be happy. But it makes sense to me that, that it was a card that, that MBS played to say U.S. and the free world have painted me as a murderer uh, with the, the death of a reporter, which he certainly was was complicit in some form or fashion. But by playing the Iranian card uh, and by lowering the amount of oil that he was releasing and by having OPEC follow lead on that, he, he really changed the rhetoric that the U.S. and that the EU in regard to, whoa, okay, time out, back up, you know, okay, we, we, in, inflation, and I mean, these other things are just as important. So, how do we backtrack on that? So, does, does MBS see this as an opportunity to become a power broker? Because he's in a position now to plausibly have some influence both with Iran and with, uh, with Israel and with the, particularly the, the Abraham Accord. Uh, nations that in, in regard to how do we do this, does this become a more isolated radical movement or is it more of an Arab, uh, you know, uh, international movement against Israel? And it'll be fascinating to me to see how that plays out in the coming days. What are your thoughts on that? Well, and also I was going to say the enemy of my enemy is my friend, but which enemy do you pick and which friend do you pick? Mm -hmm. If kind of everyone hates each other, if it's equal opportunity hatred in the region, then they he, exactly he has the ability to kind of play any side he chooses 
And we've know we've seen MBS make some really kind of canny decisions in terms of that to leverage kind of Saudi's position in the region. Obviously, Iran was held in check by Iraq for many, many years. Um, what he does moving forward kind of can cement Saudi's role as that regional kind of hegemon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you both. I will pass over to Peter for some of the macro perspective, obviously, you know, seeing how the markets have reacted to this and what he sees going forward. Peter. As both just went through, there's a lot of moving parts here. And so far, I think the market reaction has been about right, as expected, right? It's been a horrible tragedy. I think the market's doing a couple of things. One, they've generally priced oil high, higher, right? This is not going to be good for the price of oil. There's risks all around, so it's pushed up a little bit higher. Um, Treasury yields have gone down. Partly, we've had a sl flight to safety. At the same time, you know, as much as this geopolitical has been event has been going on, the Fed speak has been very much about, hey, where are real yields? Maybe we've risen too much. So that's been helping yields. And I think stocks have really been driven by lower yields than anything else. So right now, we've had this lower yields, higher oil, which the Fed will ignore, and stocks that have been doing well, mostly because of the yields. I think the two ways this plays out that are at risk that aren't fully priced in is some sort of real escalation in either way. One, a true determination that Iran was involved, that Iran was complicit in this, and that someone has to respond to Iran. I think that's an escalation that's not being priced in. So I think the markets are hopeful that, you know, whether it's plausible deniability or as long as everyone denies it and doesn't push the envelope, we can leave Iran out. So that could be good. And then the other risk, I think, is how severe is Israel's, you know, retaliation? How successful is it? Uh, General and I talked a little bit about this yesterday is, you know, what sort of civilian casualties will be occurred? How will social media portray this? And, you know, there's going to be a information war out there of who's doing what to whom. And I think, you know, clearly we're going to get different information than people in other countries, how the Middle East sees that plays out. So I think as much as Israel needs to and probably deserves to have an aggressive response to protect themselves, you know, we've got to be careful that that response doesn't lead to further problems. And from talking to all the generals and admirals, you know, it is a very confined space. Hamas clearly has to be prepared for this. So I think those are the risks out there. If we start seeing that escalation, oil goes much higher, yields lower, and then stocks start coming down as you just can't live in that sort of world with that going on. Hey, can I break in on that, Brett? Because I think sure. media pieces is critical. Clearly, the international media is going to be covering this. There's no way to control what they say, but there's really no way to control what social media says. And, and social media today is having such a phenomenal impact on shaping people's opinions. And we see it here in the United States. We see it in Europe. We see it. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And if the social media, the worst case scenario, is social media rallies the Arab world, the Islamic world, uh, in an anti-Israel reaction that really, really could ratchet this thing up uh, in, in the wrong direction, it would make it much, much more dangerous. And I don't know how you control that, but but hopefully Israel and their friends, meaning EU, NATO, and US, are saying, look, we really need to be smart about this so that we don't see that opportunity for social media to expand this in the wrong direction. Yeah, and I think there's already been some evidence that not even of deep fakes, which are likely to come out of some of this, but just people mislabeling who's involved, who's doing what to whom. And unfortunately, in this world, you know, 
a lie travels was faster around the world before you know the truth wakes up. And I think you're starting to see some evidence that people are going to have to figure out how in the social media world where things are filtered, where algos are kind of pushing things towards you, are you getting anything that's remotely accurate? And I, I think that's going to be a real challenge here for everyone involved to get the truth out there so that people really understand and can make good judgments, let alone you know pushing false narratives that allow people to make bad judgments. Well, and I think those false narratives are also likely to impact kind of political decision making in all sorts of countries. You're seeing if if the right lie takes hold, you can see it completely shift public opinion. And that's going to force the hands of politicians in ways that maybe aren't aren't based in fact or based in reality. And I don't know how we combat that, but it's it's only going to be a bigger problem. I don't know. Um, I personally had to shut off social media this weekend because I, I work in this stuff professionally and I I recognize that a lot of the things that were coming across kind of my screen were just not, they weren't verified and there's no way necessarily to verify them yet. Absolutely. I mean, this will be a very, very fast moving, um, you know, an evolving situation. Let's talk for a minute about about the Israeli response um, and obviously the mobilization of the troops and obviously the, the you know, you know it, Actually, folks assembling on the border ready for a ground assault into Gaza. Um, you know, this is something Israel hasn't had to deal with, uh, it, definitely not at this scale, you know, really since the 2006 war, though there have been obviously skirmishes with Hamas and Gaza and the West Bank, um, you know, more recently. But where do we think the overall response goes? What's Israel's objective in the near term? Um, and, you know, I know hard to say, but how how long do we think this will take? General Peskew. Yeah, first of all, Israel doesn't necessarily follow our same philosophy in urban warfare. Um, they typically have passed out notification. We're coming to this neighborhood. If you're here, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, they don't knock on the door typically. They're they're much more prone to use a bulldozer and knock a wall down uh, for an entry point than they are to do the, the house clearing type stuff that that the U.S. and particularly our special operations community has become very proficient at. That is a shoot, don't shoot type scenario, you know, watching the hands and determining is it a threat or is it not a threat. Um, so th this had, this definitely has the potential to go the wrong way, number one. Number two, 300 reservists are totally committed to defending their nation. But these are not highly trained, highly skilled teams like what our, even our infantry guys, let alone our special ops guys do. So I do think that there's a, there's a significant risk here um, in, in how Israel prosecutes going into Gaza and how much they go in, how much they use indirect fire, how much they use air um, and how much they they really try to go through and make this a Hamas fight, not a Palestinian fight. Um, and, and I don't mean that as in, you know, that's a black and white thing. It's not. That's the problem. It's how do you how do you do this to where you're doing the objectives you want? And particularly where Prime Minister has said, the gloves are off. I mean, this we're at war now. This is no longer. A, a skirmish uh, like we've done in the past. We're we're going to go in there and it lends the impression that it is going to be a little heavy-handed. 
which then gets back to how does the media portray it, how does social media portray it, how, I mean, and and does this thing, there's no value whatsoever in going and doing something that exacerbates the problem instead of facilitates a, a solution. Uh, what Israel needs is to reestablish themselves, reestablish their security architecture, reestablish their border, uh, drive the invading force out without totally devastating the civilian population. And that is a is a tough thing to do. Well, I, I believe the energy minister, actually, he is quoted as saying, we are going to change the reality on the ground to the point where this cannot happen again. And especially given kind of um, Netanyahu has had some political tribulations recently, um, this is in some ways a chance for him, given his special forces background, given his kind of militarism in some ways, this is an opportunity for him to really change his legacy and how he's seen. And I think that um, he's also going to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, it's a horrific case, but I think that it's a situation, kind of the rally to the flag effect. And then, and, and he really has an opportunity right now to go a lot further in some of the goals that he had stated previously in terms of kind of running Hamas out of the Gaza Strip. But of course there's 2 million people and I think 1 million of them are under the age of 18. I mean, some of them are still combat age males, but the, there's it's going to be a very difficult line to walk between eliminating the opportunity for Hamas to ever do this again from Gaza and not inciting a mass humanitarian crisis that then gets him condemnation from the international community. Like, how do you walk that and how do you accomplish both of those goals? And do you care about accomplishing both of those goals or do you care about kind of just just ensuring kind of the safety and security of your borders and that kind of perspective might be different for someone on the ground in Israel who's been sheltering in their house for days in fear of being taken hostage by Hamas. And, and I would add to that on Netanyahu that he, he, he almost has a reputation historically of priding himself in being cautious about going to full-scale war. So the fact that he's made the early statements that he's made, you know, really does change the metric of who is he historically as a leader of Islam and what is he doing here today? Absolutely. And as, as we obviously see the reaction, um, you know, to this and obviously Israeli forces moving in, um, you know, let's, let's say they do obviously contain Hamas. They do kick Hamas out. This will take obviously a significant amount of time, significant amount of troops um, to accomplish this. But, you know, what if we don't, what if we see them get bogged down and this is going on for several months um, and we potentially see Hamas losing, but not obviously giving up the fight. And we see proxy forces like Hezbollah open up a second front. That could happen sooner rather than later. Um, but Peter, I'll direct this one to you. I mean, if, if we do see other parties get involved, if we do see Hamas open up you know, a front up north, um, we do see Iran supporting both, but not overtly, you know, continuing to support them covertly. But we all know, obviously, you know, where the money is coming from, where the rockets and technology are coming from. How do we think the market reacts to a prolonged siege that potentially opens up a second front and then brings in other countries as well. Yeah, I, I, then I think the markets have to start reacting negatively. I think we're going to see more and more pressure on oil at that point, right? As we are probably going to have to crack down on Iran's oil shipments, which I think we turned a little bit of a blind eye to. We have over the last two years, as we looked at, you know, 
Inflation is the main problem. So we've allowed Iran to get away with some of that. So I think we have to crack down on that. Um, it's sad um, that this is coming right as we're heading into European winter. So in some ways, it's going to play into Russia's hand as it'll keep pressure in Europe as well, right? You're already seeing oil prices tick up in that. Um, and I think, you know, unfortunately, we've been talking about these autocratic resource-rich nations aligning together more and more. And I think this just, again, hammers that point home that we've got to be careful. I would like to say on the domestic front, we see some responses to really get our oil industry the support it needs, not just a one-time sort of fix, hey, we need as much drilling tomorrow as we can because oil prices are high. No, we need 10, 20, 30-year plans to figure out where we want to be. We've got to get back to being more than energy independent. I think this shows it. It's a little bit frightful to me that the Strategic Petroleum Reserve has um, you know, not really been refilled at these kind of historic lows. And slightly, you know, I don't want to say it's far-fetched anymore because I think it's becoming reality. What I don't like is I think it's going to expose even more to our adversaries that inflation is the U.S. Achilles heel. We might be good at dealing with a lot of things, but we don't have a great ability to deal with inflation. And this is highly likely to expose that if we have to crack down on Iran, or I guess the other side of it is if Iran does get involved and we don't crack down on them, what does that mean for us? How does that position us globally? So I think this is going to be a test to what we're willing to do. Hopefully, like some things like the CHIPS Act, we come out with better plans to make sure that we really do support the industries that we're going to need to be independent of this region's resources. Well, and like General Robinson just said, um, what if MBS al aligns himself with Iran and decides to really kind of crank the screws on things like oil? That the United States is going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of supporting our kind of closest ally in the Middle East, but also some fairly significant inflationary pressures heading into an election cycle. That's going to also kind of, it's going to have to play into some decision making. Yeah. And again, I, I meant to highlight this even prior. You know, Israel is an important industrial hub, right? It is a leader in technology. There's a lot of AI being done there. There's a lot of biotechnical work being done there. So I think biopharmaceutical industry, it's an important hub to the global economy. And as that receives pressure and has some difficulty operating potentially if this war grinds out, I think that will be a real drag on the global economy and our own economy, because it really is an important cog in global economy, especially for a lot of high-tech industries. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, as we continue to see this play out you know let, let's fast forward in in the next several weeks or even now you know what what other countries are going to offer up their assistance here to potentially find you know some kind of i mean there's going to be no peace there's going to be no peace until the mission is accomplished as best israel can accomplish it um, and we shouldn't be pushing for a ceasefire too early um, because obviously things need to be accomplished on the ground to ensure the security of israel but what, what other countries could step in? And I'm thinking you know, Egypt, Jordan, um, besides Saudi Arabia, obviously you know, the U.S. Russia likely has their hands full. Uh, there hasn't been much talk from them. But what other countries do we think could step up to try and you know start to mediate a peace? Obviously, Egypt had done that in the past. Um, but what other countries could step in here as we start to see this continue to go? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know that we have an answer. I mean, I think, as Maria was saying, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and – uh, MBS certainly is positioned to be able to do it, given he's been part of all the discussions that's been going on for the last, certainly, six or eight months. Uh, 
Egypt, I don't see as being a real power broker at this point in their in in their lifespan. Uh, Jordan certainly could could step up uh, and be influential. Um, and I I think there's some tug of war going on in the Middle East right now between Saudi Arabia and the uh, UAE uh, in regard to who sort of is the most influential economically. Certainly, UAE has become very much uh, influential. Uh, in some of the stuff that it's done, but I, I mean, my my, my big concern, I, I don't see anybody getting involved militarily. I think Israel Israel can handle it themselves and wants to handle it themselves. I think people will be involved on the peripheral to try to prevent it from escalating further. Um, but Israel is is enormously capable. Uh, both with their equipment and with their people, of defending their own territory. Uh, it, it's it's the function of does it escalate beyond conventional war? I, I don't think so. I, I don't see anybody who wins there. I don't see the EU or NATO uh, supporting that. I, I do think that this has the potential of fracturing some of the unanimity that that the EU and NATO has had in Ukraine, Russia. That was an easier one to pick up. I think this one will be, as if it goes longer, will be harder to maintain uh, a tight coalition that says Israel has the right to do what they're doing and we're not asking them or encouraging them to broker peace right now. We think they should have the right to defend themselves. The, the further deeper into this goes, the harder it will be for the world to support that language instead of, wait a minute, you know, you, you reestablish your borders economically for the world, as Peter was saying. I mean, there's a lot of this impacts the entire world, not just Israel and not just Hamas and not just Hezbollah. Yeah, the one thing I might add to that, I don't think we mentioned China. I will be very curious how China comes out on this. They've been very quiet on the issue right now. And I would say a couple of years ago, we viewed China as much more domestic focused rather than foreign policy focused. But we saw them make statements about Russia and Ukraine. They are talking to both there. They did get involved in trying to put the Saudis and Iranians uh, to reopen communication. So they have, I think, you know, flexed political muscle and geopolitical muscle a little bit differently than they have in the past. So, so far, my understanding is they really haven't said much here. It'll be really interesting to see how they try and step in, whether they step in as peacemakers, whether they step in and support one side or the other. Um, but that's something, you know, while they're not directly in the region, they are likely receiving Iranian oil. They've likely, you know, have interest in that region. So we'll see how China decides to play this. I think that that could be a big swing factor. And again, in Russia and Ukraine, they've been interesting in how they've approached that. So it could be a very wild card and outside of how we've been thinking that China's engagement there is high. And I would just add, there's, I mean, three to four decades worth of history between Russia, Iran, Syria, and Lebanese Hezbollah. Uh, that has not gone away. So there certainly is, a, 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 at worst, an emotional uh, relationship there, you know, or maybe at best an emotional, at worst, a, you know, support that is more tangible uh, to try to facilitate Hamas and Hezbollah, if Hezbollah gets involved in being successful, that's what we've seen in the past, is which is why most people are making the assumption, even without the facts, that 
there's no way something this complicated happens and this surprising happens without some external help and planning. To to throw this in, um, China actually released an initial statement just kind of saying everyone needs to kind of keep calm. And then they they came out and they strengthened strengthened their statement yesterday, saying that all attacks on civilians must cease, that terrorism is never acceptable. Um, they did strengthen their statement. So I found that really, really interesting because um, I don't think I've ever even seen them make such a strong statement on Ukraine. And it's been the war has been going on for a year and a half. So they're clearly concerned about it. And I think it's on their radar in a way because the region is so volatile and because it's going to affect kind of all of us if it does spill over. I I, I was surprised, but kind of heartened almost by that. <laughs> I, I don't expect the Chinese to come through with those kinds of statements pretty very often. And with that in mind, it will be fascinating to see, does this, does this create this opportunity to create new alliances, new power brokers on the world stage, on the, the global stage, that maybe we haven't seen in the past as some of these um, actors that traditionally have not really stepped in. And China has been stepping in more and more trying to broker, quote unquote, peace, you know, whether it's Middle East or whether it's in Africa or, you know, they've certainly been throwing that card around trying to present themselves as we're here to do what the U.S. used to do. And as the U.S. has pulled back, we're we're stepping forward. We now want to fill that role. So fascinating to see whether or not they they can do something that gives them some sort of international credibility that would definitely not be to the, I don't think, international community's benefit. Uh, but it's hard to stop somebody from trying to do good um, if if they can broker some some type of ability to stop the fighting. That will be viewed as possible. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, obviously, with with all this going on, you know, it's out there are other other geopolitical situations that we're focused on, but this will have ripple effects because obviously it does affect some of the parties involved. Um, obviously, with the United States continuing to focus on supporting Ukraine and NATO as well, um, you know, the U.S. obviously pledged support for Israel, um, and we also continue to pledge support for Taiwan. Uh, do we think anyone will, you know, take this as an opportunity um, to, you know, do something nefarious uh, as our attention is now spread between Ukraine and now onto Israel? Especially, this goes on for several months. And you know, what other openings does this provide our adversaries uh, to take advantage of? Obviously, our attention span focused on two major conflicts right now. Yeah, I don't think it, it causes China to do something in Taiwan. I, I think China would be far better served trying to do step into this as a broker, a peace, peacemaker, a arbitrator. But I do think there's opportunity for things to come even more unraveled than what we're seeing in Africa. Um, and I think it could definitely embolden the jihadist or Islamic movement that we see going on in Africa that's, that has already had you know, I think it's 13 coups since 2020 and seven this year. And and those numbers could grow as, as you see this type thing happening because it does detract not just attention, but it, attacks, it uh, detracts influence. And we were talking about this uh, the other week, but you know, just looking at something like Niger and where, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons these things happen, but 
here's a company that country that we thought was pretty stable that we were pouring a lot of money into that we were facilitating our counterterrorism fight that we were doing a lot of training with them and the wheels came off overnight and and we really didn't see it coming um but yet at the same time we did not have a american ambassador on the ground we didn't even have one nominated you know because we were overconfident that that was not where the the next point of friction or the next flashpoint was going to be so yeah i think there could definitely be some flashpoints that uh they that definitely exacerbate the us's problems and nato and eu's problems and the economy globally you know if if we're not very very careful not to become too myopic on what we're looking at here yeah and i think it's a sensitive time in the us i think if you look we had a very strong and aggressive um, reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're very good at that. I would say if you look back what we've gone with our debt ceiling and our own budget, we can't seem to get that organized. And we're entering into an election year. Currently, there is no speaker. I don't know how that's going to influence our response in this or any other you know, escalation. But it feels like if we can keep our act together and have a unified response quickly where you know, the bipartisan group that kind of drives national security issues remains in charge. That would be very good. But we seem slightly more fragile through the last few months than we did before. And it's not having a speaker and heading into an election year, which looks like it's not going to be a very pleasant and, you know, buddy-buddy sort of election year. This could get very difficult, I think, to figure out for the world what our response is going to be. Well, I mean, we don't have a confirmed ambassador to Israel at the moment, and we were operating under a CR that runs out November 17th. Um, If hopefully the speaker issue is resolved within the next few weeks, we're still that only gives you a couple weeks of legislative session before you go right back into budget negotiations, appropriations negotiations. And um, I think that kind of where everyone's the consensus is that maybe China or Saudi, they don't want to destabilize the situation more. But there are a lot of non-state actors that could take advantage of this situation. And I think that that's um, kind of maybe a bigger worry in this case, like Syria as a state does not have the capacity to do anything. But there are a lot of non-state groups operating within Syria. Lebanon is not going to get involved, but do they have the capacity to prevent Lebanese Hezbollah from getting involved? Egypt doesn't want to get involved and jeopardize their aid, but there are a lot of groups operating in Egypt and in the Sinai that could use this as an opportunity. So I I think that just the nature of the region over the last millennium as kind of not the most stable place isn't helpful. And then when we can't demonstrate our stability as the United States, that doesn't help anything either. And so it's that one place where you would hope that, yeah, that national security kind of blob would get up and lead, but it's not even in a position to do that because of some of the issues that we're having in Washington. Running down into our last three or four minutes up and Peter, I'll pass it to you before we go to last thoughts uh, as well. Well, I'll get my last thoughts first then and let the more important people speak. But I think, you know, I, I we've been going through geopolitical meetings for the last six months. And, you know, we talk a lot about Ukraine, Russia. The two things we always highlight at the end is Iran still out there and North Korea. Iran potentially has acted or not acted. But I think all of a sudden they went from at the bottom of the radar screen to way up top. We've got to watch what's going on in North Korea. 
So I'd say on the positive, the thing we've been talking about that's getting more recognition is India and the India's growth story and the power of what's going on there. And we haven't really talked how India will play out in this. Again, I think we're all trying to figure out how India's kind of neutrality yet massive growth will shape the world. So this could be another chance for India to kind of excel. So, uh, you know, again, we've been very positive on the growth coming out of India. We haven't talked to them about this. And that's something I'm trying to do in more of our meetings is make sure these things that seem to fall to the bottom get elevated back to the top. So probably on the negative side, North Korea, we haven't talked about. On the positive side, what can India do maybe to influence this and help? Thank you, Peter. Maria, I'll pass over to you for a few final thoughts and then over to the general. Well, we know North Korea is supplying arms to Russia. So that would be a wild kind of tunnel of arms, if you will, from if you have arms from North Korea being used in this region also. So, I mean, it's a globalized world, I, for better and worse. Yeah, so there is one positive, though, and that is post-COVID, the entire world supply chain has slowed down. So there is a positive that people are wanting to ship stuff from halfway around the world into this. It will be slower than it traditionally would be. Um, and it'll be harder to do than it traditionally would be. But but I I would echo what, what Peter and Maria said in regard to North Korea, in regard to India, in regard to Iran. But I would also, I, I think it is a very delicate time for the United States entering an election year and as rabid as the appetite seems to have been um, in against candidates, uh, that, that that has an opportunity to be have an adverse effect in, in addition to what we're talking about on the ground over there. But I genuinely believe at the end of the day, Israel will quickly uh, have some success in Gaza uh, they will try to do as quickly and as, as hard as they can so that they have the opportunity to pull back and to, to in essence, go back to a state of normality if, if they can do so. And without an Egypt or a Jordan or a Syria or an Iran entering the fight, I don't think Hamas and uh, Hezbollah will be able to do long term. It'll be a the, the big threat is, does Israel go into Lebanon uh, in order to stop Hezbollah, or can they do it without entering Lebanon to do it? And, and that obviously is a whole new metric if, if they invade Lebanon as well. So hopefully we're going to see them handle Hamas um, in, in a matter of weeks or months. Hopefully you're going to see them be able to keep uh, Hezbollah at arm's length, and hopefully we're going to be able to get Iran to put the brakes on and, and not get stupid. But there's no doubt that there are a lot of unknowns and uncertainty in the coming months that will influence and impact all of us. Thank you, sir. And Peter, thank you so much, Maria. Wonderful to see you. Thank you all for your time today. Really appreciate all your support. As our hearts go out uh, to the citizens of Israel uh, during this terrible time. We will continue to keep everyone updated with our sit reps and our podcasts and around the world pieces and obviously our macro pieces as well um, on situations that we are seeing out here. Uh, but again, thank you from Academy Securities for all your support and look forward to seeing you on the next podcast. Thank you, Brett. And thank you to our listeners as well. Academy Securities is a service disabled veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. If you have an interest in engaging with our geopolitical team directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. 
I'm your host, Andy Robinson, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.